Great. Well, here we are, end of um, Ephesians. It's been a journey over six sessions looking at the book of Ephesians, um, journeying with Paul as he wrote this letter to this church in Ephesus. And I guess for, 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 for me, it's been particularly uh, moving because um, myself and my family had the opportunity to go to Ephesus this summer and see this remarkable city. And if you were here on the first week, so I know some of you missed it because it was the kind of bloke's weekend away, um, I, I bought some photos. Um, but it was incredibly moving. Look at this incredible ancient city that got abandoned in about the 4th century. So there's so much of it there and so much of it still undiscovered um, by archaeologists of these, you know, where Paul was and walking those very literally the same streets and seeing the crosses scratched into some of the Roman buildings and the temples when they were reclaimed by the Christians as they grew in faith. Standing in the place that Paul preached um, seeing marks that Christians put for the first church, the fish scrapped into the floor. It was incredible, really, an amazing place to be, really, really moving. And I think, you know, when you do things like that, it makes... I've read Ephesians so many times. I have preached on Ephesians, heard loads of sermons on it. The armour of God, I mean, who hasn't heard a sermon on the armour of God? But there's something about experiencing being in a place to make it come alive. So these are real people that Paul was writing to in this cosmopolitan, crazy city some 200,000 people in this city, all sorts of vices, as I shared before. You know, these mega temples of, of worship and idolatry, loads of wealth, loads of tourism, loads of money, loads of kind of every kind of debauchery under the sun in this city. It was known for it. And yet in the midst of it, this small little group of Christians got planted and a church began to flourish and their gospel went out, often in, in remarkable, challenging circumstances. And so Paul's writing as a father, remembering that little church, trying to encourage them, trying to help them, trying to help them wrestle with everything that's going on around them, giving them hope. Uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't write an epistle in the way that we kind of imagine as a kind of teaching point that we're going to... He wrote a letter from his heart, one of love and encouragement. And so it's been good to journey through. And if you haven't been part of that over the last few weeks... You can catch, catch up online. I'd really encourage you to do that. Some great sermons, looking at one chapter at a time, making sense of it. So we come, we've come to the final one, chapter 6. Um, and, and chapter 6 actually feels like it's got two or maybe three parts to it. The first section feels really like it's a continuation from what Mary was brilliantly preaching about last week um, from chapter 5. And if you haven't heard it, you want to go online and listen to that. But it's about knowing how to live as a follower of Christ, that that affects our life, our relationships, the way we function. Last week was about wisdom in Christ, knowing how to live, thinking as Christ thinks, thinking with his mind, um, and, and uh, living then as wise, not unwise, walking in the light, following God's example. Um, the beginning of this chapter, as I say, it continues really from the kind of, it's, it's, it's it's split into chapter 6, but in many ways it flows straight on from what Mary shared last week. And it begins about children and parents, slaves and masters. Then there's section 2, really familiar section to many of us if you've been around church at all. You know, the armour of God. And, you know, that's often a sermon series on its own. Each individual piece of armour. Um, about being strong in the Lord, strong in Christ. And then the final section, right at the end, again reminding us of Paul's humanity, that he's a father. He's just kind of, it's a closing greeting and a prayer of peace and blessing. But in truth, as I was reflecting on chapter 6, and the truth of this passage is that in many ways it's a summary and conclusion almost of all of Paul's heart written in this whole letter. 
knowing what it is to be fully immersed in Christ, what difference that makes, and how to see the naturally supernatural fruit and blessing that overflows from who you are in Christ and knowing that. So where have we gone through this? Well, having been chosen in Christ, chapter 1, being made alive in Christ, chapter 2, having true power in Christ that we discovered in chapter 3, and embracing what it is to know the fullness of life in Christ, therefore, chapter 4, learning to walk with an abundance of wisdom in Christ, having learned that and having our minds transformed and therefore our whole way of being transformed, chapter 5 with Mary last week, well, we finally discover what it is to be found really secure, resilient, immovable in our faith, strong in Christ. That's chapter 6. Strength not coming from yourself, not coming from your own ideas, or own resilience, coming from the armor of God, which is something to help us think about on the outside, but it's actually what's inside us, that what Christ has put in us and done in us through all the other chapters of the letter that he writes that gives us a resilience and a strength to stand strong. It's that strength in Christ that allows us to hold steady and secure through the prevailing storms. Clothed and ready for battle, Paul describes it as. In him, not in our own strength, but in him. Verse 13, so that when the day of evil comes, and it will come, it's really important to know that, when the day of evil comes, not if, not possibly, but when the day of evil comes, Paul says, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. I love that. You know, it's about being battered and beaten and pressed on all sides and harassed and exhausted and kind of like, you know, you might feel like you're on the edge of giving up. But God gives you enough so that when the battle stops, you're still standing. That's what it is to be in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.8, I was reminded of this verse when I was reflecting on that passage this afternoon. We're hard-pressed on all sides, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I know lots of us here have experienced that, and I suggest over the next few days, weeks, and months, many more people are going to experience some of those pressures. It's, it's ironic, if that's the right word, probably not really, that I'm preaching on this today of all days when I've got to rush straight from here to go back to my dad, who's in a bit, bit of a challenging time at the moment. Um, Mum's broken a hip and gone in for emergency surgery and he's 87 and trying to manage all of that. It's a very human, natural thing, but it, it's a pressure, isn't it? Family can be a challenge and people you love, sickness, infirmity, and it squeezes in and, and I have to leave my family and juggle calendars and drop things that are supposed to be there and make changes and that's a pressure, isn't it? And then just coming out the door tonight, hearing that Joey had possibly broken his other ankle, not the one that he broke last time, but a different one playing football in the same place that he was badly tackled last time where they broke his other ankle and dislocated it. You think, God, what is going on? So he's in, he's in surgery or he's in the hospital with my wife at the moment. Challenges come, and, you know, and thank you for your prayers. Um, but we, many of us in this room are facing all sorts of challenges, some known, some unknown. Some of those will be in your heart and no one in this room will know about them. Some of them may be around you, with you, or very, very visible. And maybe you've got support and maybe you haven't. Some of the pressures and challenges will be in your own heart and head and no one knows about them apart from you and Jesus who wants to support you through it and who is with you. And that's the promise, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, Paul writing 
to the church in Corinth. We're hard-pressed on all sides, but not crushed. Perplexed. Ever been perplexed? God, what the heck is going on? I seem to pray that a lot at the moment. (laughs) Perplexed, but not in despair. You know, we can be perplexed. It's okay to be perplexed. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be really confused and go, God, I have no idea what's going on right now. And if I'm honest, I'm a bit peeved about it. That's absolutely okay. But what Christ wants to do is give you the strength inside so that you don't slide from that into despair or hopelessness or sense of it's all over. Because with God, there's always hope. There's always answers. There's always strength. There's always enough Enough grace, enough kindness, enough goodness, enough love, enough power. Persecuted, well, that's really true for massive parts of the church around the world. But never forsaken, God will never leave you or abandon you. He says, see, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your name is forever before me. The enemy will tell you you're abandoned. The enemy will tell you you're forsaken but it's a lie. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We do sometimes get struck down. Joey literally was struck down on a football pitch today. Others are struck down with infirmity or sickness, like my mum, other people you know. Some struck down, but never destroyed. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but God is a redeemer and the lover of our souls. And why is that possible? Well, He goes on to say, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. So just going back to that first section that really follows on from Mary's brilliant sermon last week uh, about instructions for Christian households, husbands and wives. It's an interesting one. It now follows on with children, parents and slaves. Um, In this passage, as in many others, Paul proclaims that Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, Lord of everything. He's king, he's master, and ruler of everything. Your money, your life, your work, your job, everything. At least he's supposed to be. He wants to be, and he needs to be. Lord of everything. That's why Paul uses the word Messiah, king or master, Lord, to describe Jesus five times in five verses. And it's why this section in Ephesians... Paul spends so much time talking about everyday things in our own lives, very natural things like marriage and parenting and being a child, working relationships and and kind of workplaces and who you are and what you're doing in your everyday walking around life. And Paul talks about these things because they're real for each of us, everyone in this room, because Jesus is supposed to be Lord. He's not just your personal savior to get you a ticket to heaven. He's your king, your king. He's the master, your master. He's the Lord, your Lord. And because he's Lord, there's no part of our lives that that can be sectioned off from his lordship. There's no parts that we're supposed to kind of ring fence and go, well, God's probably not interested in that, or I don't really want God to be interested in that. It's everything. It's all. Everything, every single part of our lives to come under God's rule, says Paul. So Paul's... St. Paul in this gospel here, for example, addresses the work of servants in a household. You know, and and I think he's trying to understand, because there would have been people who had come to faith in some of these households, and and it must have been really difficult for them to think that what they're doing was meaningful to God. 
pushing brooms, cleaning, sweeping up, emptying out the toilets, the latrines, you know, really menial, really unseen, often dirty, unthinkable tasks that they were doing. Yet Paul's just saying to them in his letter, written to them, work with all your heart as though you're serving the Lord. What you're doing there, unseen by anyone else, God sees it and loves you. And why don't you make it your offering to God? Because Jesus is master and Lord, says Paul, and any work you're doing, even the most menial, simple thing, can be work as though unto the Lord. It's done for him. You've got a calling from God, and you can be serving him. There was a famous guy called John Stott, who's a Christian writer, and he used to talk about um, Christians often operating under what he called a vocational pyramid. This is like talking in the Christian world, and at the top of the the pyramid was church leaders and pastors, uh, and maybe missionaries. They were kind of like the pinnacle. When you mention their name, you know, angels start singing. And then just underneath that, there might be like worship leaders or church ministers. And then further down, you have possibly uh, teachers and nurses and doctors and social workers doing kind of good, 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 good and godly things. And then beneath them, you have blue-collar workers and business people. And then right down at the bottom, amongst all the backsliders and kind of, you know, the scum of the earth, there are lawyers and, you know, bankers and financiers and all those sort of things. Um, and we kind of like, you know, this is what the church can do. It creates this hierarchy of holiness and importance. And we rank ourselves and others by, by a forced graduation of vocational holiness. Oh, if only one day I could aspire to be a pastor, you know, and then I can give up all else I'm doing and properly serve God. And Paul in this book, he, this letter, he kind of explodes that myth and says, it's a load of rubbish. There's no such thing as menial work. Whether you're banking or painting or going to school or doctoring or sweeping a broom or changing a nappy or fixing a pipe, every job, every area of our work and our lives, when done for God, has massive significance and honor and value. And God's with you in it and wants to bless you. Jesus, who's Lord over all, is interested in what you do and who you are and wants to give you supernatural grace to be able to do it with excellence and favor. And I appreciate sometimes we find ourselves in a dead-end job and we think, oh, is this it, Lord? Well, maybe God has got something else for you. Because God wants you to be fruitful in whatever you're doing. He wants your heart to sing, whether you're a teacher or whether you're a plumber or whether you're a mum or whether you're whatever you might be. I mean, I knew someone who was really into sewage. I mean, not into sewage, because that would be awful, but he was fascinated about sewage and dealing with sewage. And he, his heart sung around, I mean, I don't get that. But he did it as though he was serving the Lord, because that's where he, that's what he felt God made him. And it was beautiful, and it was glorious, and he was incredibly faithful in it, and God gave him incredible favor in that whole area. Verse 6, Paul reminds the servants to not do their work to please their earthly bosses, but for your real heavenly boss. That's great for all of us, isn't it? Paul's saying that no matter what your earthly boss is like, your real boss, the one behind your earthly boss, Jesus, the Lord, and that boss always deserves a good day of work. He always deserves the best. So followers of Jesus are urged to contribute. And that's why I believe in these days, God wants us as Christians to impact this city, to transform this city, whether it's with education or finance or in the schools or in the nurseries and in all these different places, to make a real living transformative impact because of who we are as Christians, because we're serving without any agenda. We're serving to love and to bless and to bring transformation.
not wanting to be seen for, you know, to be seen to be doing well, not just doing it for money, but doing it because we know we're serving the Lord, we're serving our King. So that whole first section there, Jesus' Lordship changes our approach to work, but also Jesus' Lordship changes our approach to people at work. Because if we're honest, that's why lots of people don't like preaching on this passage, if we're honest, when we read a text like this, when Paul starts talking about slaves or servants, if we use a slightly more comfortable word, you know, we understandably get a bit upset that Paul didn't kind of call out slavery and call for its abolition. And it's true, tragically, that some Christians historically have abused texts like this to justify slavery. So, for example, in the south of the USA, you know, historically Christians have said, well, you know, slavery is fine. Paul talked about slaves being obedient, therefore it's fine. It's clearly fine. I couldn't be further from the truth, really, of the heart of what Paul was trying to say. It's really important that we understand that Paul in no way cherishes slavery as a concept in any form. He's actually, in these words, laying a foundation here for a quiet revolution, an unthinkable revolution in, our, in the world of work. First, it's staggeringly surprising that Paul is actually addressing slaves at all. I mean, you never spoke to slaves there were household codes like this written at the time to, to help households understand the nature of how they should function well, um, serving like manuals for the head of the estate, how to relate to his wife and the children and the slaves and all the rest of it. But Paul's household co- code is remarkable because he doesn't just address the head of the household, he addresses the servants themselves who, who in that pro- in society were property without any rights. He actually speaks to them and addresses them with dignity as equal partners in the gospel who are to be seen and treated fully as an equal part of the Christian community, he bestows on them a dignity and honor that they would never receive in that world and was unthinkable. And he reminds them that they're really serving Jesus, not the guy who happens to be their boss. And then perhaps even more shockingly, Paul then addresses the estate heads themselves and reminds them of their true status, that they have a master themselves. He says this, verse 9, Do the same to them. That is, treat your servants with the same respect you want from them and stop your threatening, knowing that who is both their master and yours is in heaven and he doesn't honor your privilege and shows no favoritism. Paul's saying, you think you're a master, but you're really a servant too, if you're following Jesus. You're actually no different from the servants in your own home and until you recognize that, you're you're a slave to Jesus too, then you you have no real way here. You can't be a good master to others. Your power means nothing to the Lord who is ruler over all. It's about equality and equity and balance. What Paul's saying and showing here is that Jesus' lordship has to utterly, radically have a social impact in the community. And it did. And we know from gospel accounts that some of the slaves were set free by their masters. But actually the slaves then chose to become, you know, carry on working there. Some of you will have noticed I have an earring. It isn't just to look cool, although, you know. Okay, I don't look cool. Um, When I was about 28, I was working um, in Bristol doing youth work and uh, heading up various things over there. And and at the time, um, God spoke to me really clearly about being a servant and a slave to him and what it meant, what a life laid down to Jesus meant. Uh, And in the kind of Testament days, if you were a servant and you were set free by your master, 
because that's what they could do. And in Christian households, that's often what happened. When they all came to faith and the master of the household came to faith and the servants came to faith and the children and the wife, sometimes what would happen is the, the master would be so convicted about slaves and servants would say to them, you're free, I release you. And that was a really big deal in Roman times. But often those servants would feel so loved and cherished and want to stay there working in that environment, they would go back to their master and say, no, I'm choosing to come and work for you. I'm choosing to stay with you. I want to pledge my life to you, not because I have to, not because you bought me, but because actually you've given me my life back and I want to give my life in service to this household because I love this household. And when that happened, what happened was the, servant, the master would take a ring and put it in the servant's ear to show that, yes, they were kind of working there, but they were no, no longer a slave. They were given themselves freely back. And there was a sign and a symbol, public thing. And so I've got this very small little ring here to remind me that Jesus has given me my life back when I found him. But I'm saying, Jesus, this is, this is my sign to remind me Every time I knock it and it hurts when I'm in the shower or something like that, it reminds me, Jesus, I'm yours for life. I've given my life back for you. And the little I can to give back to you, I give it all. And that's the challenge for these households. And Paul's writing these things. And it would have been radical. We don't get it now, but it would have been radical. This is the radical grace of Jesus. It means that previous social divisions and powers are meaningless. The gospel has changed that. And so for us, our daily living and working relationships need to be changed too. The power relationships we have with others, the way we perceive others, the way we work with others, Jesus wants to be Lord of that. Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to you is great news. He's saying to you, to every one of us, we have an equal and valuable part in this community of faith. Whatever you do, whatever you are. Just because you don't have certain things that give you social power, some of you here maybe you're financially really strapped, or some of you may not have gone to university and got degrees and all the rest of it. You might not have power or influence or popularity or any of those things, but you're of completely equal value in this community of Jesus. You have an equal voice. Your voice matters as much as mine, maybe more than mine, because you'll see things I definitely won't see. That's the way it's supposed to be in church family. We're supposed to all be in this together as family, and your voice matters to Jesus. And it matters to us as church. Maybe others of us are in positions of power. Here I am, I'm standing on a platform, I've got a microphone. You know, I'm standing behind an Apple Mac. I must have real power. You know, we do, some of us do have positions of power. And Paul's comfortable with naming privilege. It's a simple fact that certain people have more power and privilege than others in society. And this beautiful letter that Paul writes is calling us not to fear such things or hide from them or be ashamed of them, but to name that privilege, to recognize that it's there and to bring it under the lordship of Jesus. So for me as a church leader, for me as a man, I'm often keen to recognize that as a man, I've, in a church context, I've often had outrageous privilege and power and authority that has often historically subjugated women. Well, we as a church want to say that's not the heart of God and we want to do everything we can to raise one another up, whatever position we're from, whatever our background, whatever our culture. Jesus says to the masters, what you have is not yours. You're under authority. You're a slave to Christ. And the gap that you think separates you from those beneath isn't really there at all, shouldn't be there. So what about for you, for those in authority here, for bosses? include myself in this. If you have power in your place of work or in your place in the world, 
How might you take this letter and Paul's message to heart? How might we increasingly treat others that we're working with, those that work under us, that serve us? How might you change and influence for good the culture that's around you? How might you defend the vulnerable, honor the weak, raise up the lowly, and fully share all that God has graciously given to you? It's about being generous hearted and open handed, isn't it? Then perhaps you'll find that you're already unconsciously, automatically, unthinkingly, already fully clothed in the armor of God. I think there's something good about praying on the armor of God and thinking about it. But actually, do you know what? I think if we choose to live in the light and we choose to be subject to Jesus' lordship and we yield our heart to him fully and daily and we, we, we long to walk in the light and pursue him, then I think it's like the armor of God kind of automatically zooms on us. It's like Iron Man. You know, when he used to be able to press the button, he would go, shoo, 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 and all his suits would just automatically kind of connect to him and he'd be kind of clothed in this but maybe it's just me that watched Iron Man, okay. But I love that image, and in some ways I think it's a bit like the, the armor of God. If we are walking in holiness and we're pursuing Jesus and we're making right choices and we're choosing to live in Christ and all the things we've talked about, it's like the armor of God is drawn to us. We're all automatically in it. It becomes part of who we are. Dressed for battle clothed in the righteousness of Christ, prepared for the challenges ahead, made strong in the Lord by whom you've become made mature in the stature of Christ, maturing into him because of what Christ is doing in us. Back to that verse. So when the day of evil comes, and it will come, you will be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to be found standing. See, there's a battle the battle is against the enemy of our souls. It isn't against flesh and blood. That's what that scripture tells us. But of course, the, the enemy uses flesh and blood. He uses people, you know, whether it's by accident, like, you know, whoever tackled Joe again on the football pitch at the same pitch, and if it's the same boy, we will be having words. You know, flesh and blood causes problems for us and people you work with. But there's an enemy behind these things energizing kind of the darkness around us. He works through people, through wrongdoing, through the injustices of our days, evil men and women. But evil takes all sorts of forms and not just actions, often it's inactions as well. Those who collude, those who are silent in the face of wrongdoing and just in injustice. There's warfare going on around us all the time. There's battles in our mind, hopeless thoughts, voices of fear or anxiety. And we all wage warfare in our lives. There's warfare coming against us. And God is wanting us to be people who are prepared and ready and able to make a stand. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ there will be people in this room right now who feel really rubbish who feel hopeless there will be people in this room right now who are struggling to concentrate I get that because I'm just droning on possibly there will be people here who feel really confused and really fuzzy headed and sometimes we just think well that's just life right no, it's spiritual warfare. The enemy will try and whisper words into your head like, you, don't, you shouldn't be here. You don't believe this stuff. You're not good enough to be a Christian. 
You're a failure. What about that shame you carry? I know what you did yesterday. These voices that battle in our mind. And, you know, sometimes we just learn to live with them. We kind of, like, mute it out. But the truth is, even though we might try and block it out, it gets into our heart and it affects our whole DNA. If the first thought you have when you wake up in the morning is, oh, no, this is going to be an awful day, then you may well have an awful day. Because the enemy wants to just slowly pollute our souls and bring heaviness over us and darkness over us. There is a battle going on. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ, says Paul. Oh, I wish that was true in my life, because I know it isn't. But I want it to be. And God wants to give us the power so that we can. Here's a translation of that passage from the message. quite like it. The world is unprincipled. It's dog-eat-dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they're for the demolition, for for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction building lives of obedience into maturity. So I want to finish with this, you'll be pleased to know. Chapter 6 was entitled, Being Strong in Christ. And so what does that look like for us? Well, I've talked about the ways it affects us in the workplace, the ways it affects our relationships, when we serve others, when we're in authority over them, when we're kind of submissive underneath them, as, as parents and family. But this is what Romans 12 says. Romans 12, 1 to 2 and 9 to 21. And I'm going to read it from the message because I really like this. This is what it says. Romans 12, chapter 1, verse 1 to 2 and 9 to 21. Paul writing to the church in Rome, trying to help them in the same way as helping the Ephesians. He says this. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Verse 9. So love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray for all the hard. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be a great somebody. I want to pray for us. Let's take a moment to pray, and we're just going to close with some worship.
Lord, a couple of weeks ago in staff meeting as we were praying, I was just reminded of that passage in Scripture where it talks about kind of we have lives in clay pots. And as I was thinking about my own life and the fragility of sometimes life, just feeling really cracked, I think many of us know what it is to feel like a cracked pot, a bit vulnerable, uh, a bit uncertain and unsteady, not sure where we're glued together. But as I thought of that, Lord, I was reminded of that Japanese beautiful art of it. I think it's in Sagi, um, where they take broken vessels and they glue them back together, not with glue, but with beautiful gold in between. And instead of hiding the cracks, the gold is allowed to show. And the vessel that's created is all the more beautiful because of the gold veins and lines that stretch across it and becomes a stunning piece of beautiful, restored, renewed, and yet creatively beautiful art. And Jesus, you reminded me that the cracks in our lives are okay when we allow them to be filled with your light and your love. So Jesus, we don't want to be kind of perfectly looking vessels on the outside that people just look at and think, well, it's all right for you. We're prepared to be vulnerable and open about our brokenness and our struggles. You're the God of healing and transformation and you come to us and you bring healing. So Lord, for each of us, I pray that as we go into the world in our lives, we aren't perfect people who are problem and pain free but we're people who are healed and restored and renewed by the love and the glory and the wonder of Jesus Jesus may people see your light flowing from us from every crack from every hidden corner from every part of who we are Jesus that our lives would shine with a radiance of, of Jesus of your beauty Lord there be an honesty in who we are frail vessels but ones made so strong in Christ renewed full of hope and power and authority jesus we yield to you would you be lord of every area of our hearts and lives we pray in your glorious name amen